I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A man had been driving all night when he decided to stop in a small town and catch some shut-eye. So he pulled into a local park and dozed off. He was awakened by a knock on the window. Outside the car was a jogger. He said, excuse me, can you give me the time? He said, yeah, it's 627. The man settled back down and was almost asleep again when there was another knock on the window. Another jogger. Sorry to disturb you, but do you have the time? He said, yeah, it's 634. The man rolled up the window and realized this could go on indefinitely. So he got out a pen and paper and made a sign. And he stuck it on the window. It said, I do not know the time. Settled back in his seat. Began to fall asleep again. There was another tap on the window. Sure enough, it was another jogger. The man disgustedly rolled down the window and he said, Yeah, what is it? And the jogger said, It's 642. When it comes to future events, a lot of people want to know what time is it. And a lot of people think they know what time it is. And that was no different in the first century. There were many in the church at Thessalonica who wanted to know what time it is. And that generated curiosity. They were much like us. They wanted to circle a date on their calendar. But there were others in the church at Thessalonica who thought they knew what time it was, and that generated concern. Some were saying that the time had already come and they had missed it. And that's more fully developed when Paul writes the second letter to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you notice verse 2, he says, "...that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come." Some there had the idea that the day of the Lord had already come. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul addresses the issue of the time and their concern about being left behind. Notice verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, Paul closes the fourth chapter with a discussion of the rapture in verses 13 to 18. And now as we come to chapter 5, he moves to another topic in verse 2 called the day of the Lord. Now, the rapture takes us out of the day of man, which the Bible refers to as the times of the Gentiles. And it sets the stage for a new day called the day of the Lord. Now, the rapture and the day of the Lord are not the same event. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you just two reasons that I see right here in our passage. Number one, the rapture will take place in a split second. The day of the Lord will encompass a long period of time. How does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52 describe the rapture? It says it will occur in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The rapture is quick. The day of the Lord is not going to be quick. 
Now, in the Bible, the word day can refer to a 24-hour period, or it can refer to a longer period of time. As an example of that, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. There he's talking about a 24-hour day. But if you look at the very next verse, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And there the word day is used for the entire week of creation. In our passage, Paul is using the word day to refer to a longer period of time. And that's apparent in verse 1 where he uses a phrase, the times and the epochs. Times is the Greek word chronos, from which we get our word chronology. It simply means clock time or calendar time. Epochs is the Greek word karos. It means seasons or events. It's looking at time in terms of the events that take place. We use that concept when we talk about the good times or memorable times or modern times. But with that distinction in mind, I want you to notice in verse 1, that the phrase times and epochs is in the plural. You see, if they were inquiring about the rapture, that's a one-time, instantaneous happening. If they were inquiring about the rapture, this would be singular. But they are inquiring about the times, plural, and the events, plural. And so what they want to know about is what's going to happen in these times and events at the end. There are many times at the end. Daniel talks about the 70th week a seven-year period. We also read about the Great Tribulation. That will be a a three-and-a-half-year period, or 1,260 days. It's also referred to as times, time, and half a time. In Daniel chapter 12, there's a reference to 1,290 days and to 1,335 days. There's also a reference in Scripture to the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. There are many times. There are also many events. There's the rise of the Antichrist. There's the salvation of the nation of Israel. There's the series of judgments described in Revelation 6 to 16. There's the return of Jesus Christ. There's the battle of Armageddon, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, the binding of Satan, the destruction of the world, the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. There are many times and epochs that make up the end. And you see, these Thessalonian Christians are asking about this larger scope of events, and Paul refers to that larger scope of events as the day of the Lord. Second reason there's a distinction between the rapture and the day of the Lord, is that the rapture is a time of blessing and the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. And that's clear from our passage as well. In chapter 4 and verse 17, describing the rapture, it's a time when we will meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. But notice what he says about the day of the Lord in verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. You see, the rapture is something to be hoped for. The day of the Lord is something to be dreaded. And we see that emphasis throughout the Old Testament. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is used at least 20 times in the Old Testament. It's also referred to by phrases like that day or the day over a hundred times. And the theme is clearly judgment. If you go through the Old Testament and read all those references, you'll find words like wrath, anger, desolation, destruction, terror, gloom, darkness, distress, trouble. Six times it's referred to as a day of doom. Four times it's referred to as a day of vengeance. 
Let me just give you a flavor of it. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Listen to the way Zephaniah describes it in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It is the day when God will unleash his wrath on the sinners of this earth and will sweep them away. And it will be a complete destruction. Look again at the end of verse 3. He says, and they shall not escape. In the day of man, man escapes. You're always wondering, why did he get away with that? When are we going to see justice? Well, in the day of the Lord, God is going to bring justice. And that justice is going to come in the form of wrath and judgment. In the day of the Lord, there will be nowhere to run. There's a commentary on that in Revelation chapter 6. It talks there about how the angel will break the sixth seal. And it says, the sun will become black, the moon will become like blood, the stars will fall from the sky, the sky will split and roll up like a scroll, the mountains and the islands will be moved out of their place. And then it says this in verse 15. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, that's everybody from every social strata, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In that day, men will even try to hide from God through death and won't be able to. And notice, they will recognize it as the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. You say, well, what are the perimeters of the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is primarily concentrated in that time we know as the great tribulation because that is when God is going to pour out his wrath on the sinners of this world. Listen to Joel chapter 2 and verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. 
The day of the Lord's judgment will be a day like this world has never seen. And where have we heard those kind of words before? Well, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. The day of the Lord is really synonymous with the great tribulation when the judgment of God will be poured out. But it doesn't really end there. In fact, the day of the Lord actually extends throughout the millennium. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The day of the Lord comes in that great tribulation when God pours out His wrath. It extends throughout the millennium because there's one more event that's going to occur. It's the final unleashing of God's wrath when He actually destroys this earth by fire. Now, let me add a footnote. You'll also find a phrase in the New Testament, the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus. That's not the same as the day of the Lord. Wherever you find that expression, the day of Christ, it's always referring to believers and it's always talking about how they will be rewarded by the Lord. Let me give you an example. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ is for believers. It's associated with the rapture and rewards. The day of the Lord is for unbelievers. It's the day when God will pour out his wrath on this world. And then there's one other phrase. It's only mentioned one time. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, and that's the phrase, the day of God. And that's a phrase, as you read it there, that, that speaks about the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth. So the day of Christ, the rapture and rewards for believers, the day of the Lord, God's judgment on this earth on unbelievers, and then the day of God is the new heaven and the new earth. Now, that was a little technical, but I wanted you to understand what the day of the Lord is. And now that we understand the context of the day of the Lord, let's look at these two questions and how Paul answers them, these two questions that were on the minds of the Thessalonian believers. These two questions are, when is the day of the Lord coming, and are we going to be here? Now, aren't those two questions you would ask? When is the day of the Lord going to come, and are we going to be included in that? First question, when is the day of the Lord coming? Now, he answers that in verses 1 to 3. We already read them. Paul says, when it comes to the times and the events of the day of the Lord, you don't need anything to be written to you. Why not? Because you already know everything you need to know. Now, what did they know? Well, he lets us know here that they knew two things about the time. And he uses two analogies to show us that. The first analogy is, in verse 2, it will come like a thief in the night. Now, what's the characteristic of a thief? Does he send you one of those little postcards that reminds you of your appointment? No. The characteristic of a thief is that he comes unexpectedly. And that's the way the day of the Lord will be. Look at verse 3. It says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. This world is going to be expecting the very opposite when it gets the judgment of God. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, 
it tells us that the first half of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, will be characterized by a peace covenant that the Antichrist will make with Israel. So a leader is going to arise. He's going to make peace in the Middle East, something no one has ever done before. And the world is going to celebrate that peace, and they're going to say, we've got peace and safety. And while they are celebrating peace on earth, the day of the Lord is coming, and God is going to bring his judgment instead. And so it's going to come unexpectedly. And then secondly, he gives another analogy, and that's in verse 3. He says it will come like birth pangs upon a woman with child. Now, you ladies who have children know what birth pangs are like. I know a little bit about them because the, the marks in my arm when I was sitting by the bed of my wife. What's the nature of birth pangs? Well, they come suddenly, as he says in verse 3, and they also get progressively worse. And that's the same with the day of the Lord. In fact, Jesus uses the same analogy in Matthew 24, 8 to describe the tribulation period when he says, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. God's judgment will come suddenly. It will, be, it will progressively worsen until it finally gives birth to the ultimate destruction at the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in answer to the question, when is the day of the Lord coming, Paul says, you already know. It's going to come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, and it's going to come suddenly and get progressively worse like birth pangs on a woman with child. Second question, are we going to be here? And Paul answers that question in verses 4 to 11. And he gives us here three reasons why we'll, we will not be here. Number one, we're in a different family. Number two, we have a different purpose. And number three, we have a different destiny. First of all, we're in a different family in verses 4 and 5. Now, I want you to notice the pronouns in verse 3 because there's a contrast here. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Notice verse 4. But you, brethren. You see, we are not in the they of verse 3 that will go through the destruction of the day of the Lord. We are in the we of chapter 4 and verse 17 who will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before the day of the Lord begins. And the first reason he gives for that is that we're in a different family. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Who does this day overtake unexpectedly? Those who are in the darkness. As he says in verse 2, it will come like a thief in the night. But Paul says, you are not in the darkness. You are not of the night. And then he says something further in verse 5. He says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, in verse 4, he says, you're not in the night. And then he goes a step further in verse 5. He says, not only are you not in the darkness, you're not of the darkness. Not only are you not in the night, you are not of the night. That is, you're not identified with it. You're not part of it. You see, if you're a believer here today, you used to be part of it. In Luke twenty-two fifty-three, Jesus called Satan the power of darkness. In Ephesians six twelve, Satan's demons are called the forces of darkness. In Colossians 1.13, this world is called the kingdom of darkness. In Jude 13, hell is referred to as the blackness of darkness forever. 
We were once in the darkness, we were once of the darkness, and we were destined for eternal darkness. But that is no longer the case for us. In Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1, 12. Give thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. And so Paul can say in verse 4, you're not in the darkness. He can say in verse 5, you're not of the darkness. And he can even go further in verse 5 and say, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are children of the one about whom John said in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's why Jesus could say of us in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. And so we are not going to face the day of God's wrath because we're in a different family, the family of light. Second reason, we have a different purpose, and that's in verses 6 to 8. Notice, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Now, there are two primary things that people do at night. Paul points them out to us here. One is they sleep. My daughter went to a slumber party on Friday night. Funny thing about slumber parties, they seem to do everything but slumber. So I came home yesterday for lunch, and I went into my bedroom, and my daughter had sat down on the bed and fallen asleep. And so I changed clothes, took a shower, got dressed for a wedding, was opening drawers, making noise. She still doesn't know I was even in the room until now. She was totally indifferent to what was going on. And that's what Paul is talking about here spiritually. He's saying lost people in this world are not only in the dark, they are spiritually asleep. They are totally indifferent to what's really going on. And then he says there's a second thing that happens at night, and that is people get drunk. He says that at the end of verse 7. We can agree with that, can't we? That's why the ad says the night belongs to Michelob. That's why they call them nightclubs. They wouldn't do real well if they were day clubs. That's why you go inside and there are very few windows because they want it to be dark. Paul says people get drunk in the dark. And that's the way lost people are in this world. They're not only in the darkness and they're not only asleep, they are in a drunken stupor. Now, that's what you would expect from people in the night. You would expect sleep, and you would expect drunkenness. But Paul says, you are people of the day, and you have a different purpose. Your purpose is the very opposite of that. Rather than being asleep, you are to be alert. That is awake. You're to have your eyes wide open. You are to be looking for opportunities to bring people out of the darkness into the light. And rather than being drunk, you are to be sober. That is, you are to be clear-headed, sensitive to spiritual reality. 
Now, how do I stay alert and sober in a world that is continually attracting me back into the darkness? You know, the world's pretty, pretty clever. It's got neon lights out there saying, we're having fun. And here I am in the light, and I'm being attracted back to the darkness. How do I deal with that temptation? Well, when Paul talks here about being alert and sober, it suggested to him the image of a soldier on duty. And that's what he talks about in verse 8. He says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. A well-equipped soldier had two essential pieces of armor. One was the breastplate, and the other was the helmet. The breastplate was like a bulletproof vest made out of chain mail, and it protected the vital organs. The helmet was like a football helmet or a motorcycle helmet, and it protected the head from blows from the enemy. Now, he tells us here that the breastplate represents faith and love, and the helmet represents hope. Those are the three highest virtues of a Christian. Paul pointed that out with the Thessalonian church back in chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, you have faith, love, and hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But what I want to point out in this passage is that those three virtues are your three greatest defenses against temptation. Faith, hope, love are your armor that protects you from the darkness. You say, well, how does that work? Well, first of all, he mentions faith. I need to put on the breastplate of faith by saying, I'm going to trust in God's person. I'm going to trust in God's power. I'm going to trust in God's promises. I'm going to trust in God's plan. Now, how is that a defense against sin? Well, every sin that I commit is simply an act of distrusting God. When you worry, what are you saying? You're saying, yes, God, you said you're in charge. You said this was not too hard for you. You said you could handle it. You said you had a plan, but I don't believe you. So I'm going to worry. When you lie, what are you saying? God, I know you said that if I told the truth, you'd bless me, but I don't believe you. You see, every temptation questions the credibility of God. God says, do what's right and I'll bless you. Satan says, do what's wrong and you'll have fun. Now, who are you going to believe? You see, we need to put on the breastplate of faith. Second is love. How is love a defense against sin? Well, all sin reflects a failure to love God. Whoever is the supreme object of my affection will control what I do. And so when I sin, I'm saying, sorry, God, but I am the supreme object of my affection. That's why Paul could say in Romans 13.10 that love fulfills the whole law. If I love God, I won't have other gods. If I love God, I won't make other images. If I love God, I won't take his name in vain. We need to put on the breastplate of love. 
And then the third is the hope of salvation. Why does a Christian need to hope in salvation? You say, oh, I thought he already had it. Well, you do, but it's not complete. You see, salvation comes in three phases. We were saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We are being saved in the present from the power of sin. And we will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. And he's talking here about the future element of this salvation, which is our hope. How is that a defense against sin? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3, 3, he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. So what is it that keeps us alert and sober? Faith as we trust God, love as we make him the center of our affection, and hope as we anticipate the day when we will be like him. So we are not going to face the wrath of the day of the Lord because we have a different purpose. And then the third reason, we have a different destiny in verses 9 to 11. Notice verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Now what wrath is he talking about? Well, what's the context of this passage? He's talking about the wrath of the day of the Lord. God has not destined you for the wrath of the day of the Lord. What has he destined you for? Look at the rest of verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What has God destined you for? That future salvation. You see, I already have a new spirit, but I don't have a new body yet. I already have been delivered from the penalty of sin, but I have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. And when is that going to happen? It's going to happen back in chapter 4 and verse 17, when I meet the Lord in the air. You see, you are not destined for the wrath of the day of the Lord. You are destined for the rewards of the day of Christ. You say, well, how could that be? Look at verse 10. He gives us the answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. There's the entire reason right there. He died in your place. He took the wrath that you and I deserve. And because of that, he goes on to say that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. He died, so we live. And notice he says, whether you are awake or asleep. Now, there's two ways to take that. One way, he could be referring to physical death as he used the word sleep back in chapter 4 and verse 13. If so, he's saying, whether you stay alive till Jesus comes back or whether you die, we will all be alive with him. But there's another way he could be making the statement. And that is, he could be referring to spiritual sleep as he used the term back in verse 6. In fact, it's very interesting here that he actually uses a different Greek word in chapter 4 than he uses in chapter 5. And so in chapter 4, when he talks about Believers being asleep, he uses one word. When he comes to chapter 5, he, in verse 6, 7, and again in verse 10, he uses a different word. And so when he talks here about being asleep, he may be talking about spiritual sleep. If so, he's saying, whether you stay alert as a Christian or whether you slumber, we'll all live together with him. You say, well, how could that be? Well, because my salvation is not dependent upon my staying alert. My, my salvation is dependent on what it says in verse 10, Jesus Christ died for us. 
And then look at verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. The word encourage here is the very same word he used up in chapter 4 and verse 18 where it's translated, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so here at the end of this passage in verses 1 to 11, he says, I want you to comfort one another. You say, well, how can a discussion of the wrath of the day of the Lord be comforting? Well, the answer is because we won't be there. We're in a different family. We're sons of light. We have a different purpose to be alert and sober, and we have a different destiny. We are destined for the rapture described in chapter 4. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. If you're a child of light, be comforted. If you're a child of darkness, be warned. But I've got good news for you today if you're a child of darkness. And that is you still have an opportunity to come to the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life.